Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Travis Statham is a software development engineer. He studied computer science and rode crew at Lehigh University and graduated in 2011. He is also a researcher and spokesman for the carnivore diet and contributes an enormous amount of time and energy into sharing his message. He is the moderator of the World Carnivore Tribe page on Facebook, which has over 53,000 followers at the time of this recording. He also advocates carnivory on Reddit, where he has accumulated a massive amount of information and nutritional studies. He can also be found on his website, carnaway.nyc, and on Twitter, at Travis underscore Statham. He's also a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which probably means that this dude never sleeps. Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Uh, I do... I, I do sleep, and I've been sleeping really well the past year because I haven't been able to do jujitsu. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, let's see. So how um, that must be pretty tough. Uh, jujitsu definitely is. Obviously, you're in very very close contact, but it it seems to me like a, a really close like brotherhood with all the people in your studio. Is that is that am I getting that right? That is so accurate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's basically like my little church I go to, you know, and. We fight each other, we sweat on each other's faces, <laughs> and then we talk about it. And we just, you know, it's, it's like a great camaraderie. And uh, like, you know, like you, you learn by losing, basically. Like when, when you make mistakes, that's how you get better. And you depend on your teammates, basically, to teach you lessons. And, you know, it's never about like losing or, you know, like no tap is a bad thing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're putting our lives in each other's hands, really. Like I I've been choked out and seen stars and wow. woke up and been like, you know, I was just dead. <laughs> and, uh, and it's pretty instantaneous and you only have a couple seconds sometimes to make that decision. Can, can I, can I survive this pressure on my neck? Is it, it am I going to be okay? Uh, I think I can do it. And then, you know, you think that, and then you're out. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, super interesting. Huh? Yeah. I, I miss it a lot. And yes. Uh, I, I've been doing it for six years and would go basically two to three times a week. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and my job is in Manhattan. So I take the subway into work. And then after work, I go to jujitsu for two hours. And it's like just such an incredible workout. It's fun. You learn something new and you're talking with your friends all day. So sounds amazing. Yeah. What have you done to kind of replace it when the shutdown happened? Uh, I got an X3 like for my birthday in uh, February last year. So I've been using that on and off, Mm. but honestly, there's not really much that can replace it. Gotcha. uh, Yeah. I've kind of fallen through on working out and I need to get back into it. And I want to prep for going back to jujitsu in a month or two when COVID maybe slows down. Mm, nice. Yeah, that's uh, great, man. Hard to say. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, we're we're definitely hoping that a lot of these things come come back online. I'm missing hockey games and things like that. And so super excited for those to come back. You are a software engineer in the nutrition space, which I think is so cool. I see it a lot. And I, I don't know, man, I don't have the same kind of brain that a software engineer has, and you have the ability to see things in a different light, in a different way than a lot of people in the nutrition world. Um, what first got you interested in nutrition? Yeah, so uh, when I was 23, I had a little post-college beer belly, I guess. Uh, I went on a trip to Europe, and my mom was kind of making fun of me, and uh, I returned to that, and then I started working in the city and doing kind of like commuting in and doing a job. And on the commute, I read um, Good Calories, Get Bad Calories by Gary Tobbs, also known as the Diet Delusion. Mm. And I was just like, whoa, I didn't know any of this. And there's so much to know about this. And it's basically science, but it's application, it's testable. Um, and it it made me see obesity and chronic disease in a new light. Whereas like before I was kind of like blaming it on people like, Oh, they're lazy or unmotivated. But then I really thought of it as like a systemic problem, like a government advice problem, a religious 
kind of indoctrination problem. And like, I could see finally that like the, uh, like big moneyed interests were really driving the conversation and it wasn't about health or human well-being. Hmm. Um, well, uh, yeah, that book is pretty shocking the first time you come across it. I remember specifically that I had a bookmark that I was using for that book specifically, and I would make notes on the bookmark. And before long, like all of my notes were completely illegible because I put so many on there and was writing so small and writing over other notes. And like, that's a lot to take in at first. Yeah, it really is. Um, really is. And, and, you know, like I, I wasn't really trained in nutrition at all. So it was all basically new to me, but I, I, I did the diet that summer and lost weight and felt great. And was like, okay, this has definitely got some legs to it. And then because I'm, I was mostly a skinny, healthy guy over the years. I, I could kind of stay keto and then like go on binges or cheats and stuff. And I would like oscillate between the two modes. And then I would read like a new Gary Tobbs book, like why we got, why we get fat in 2014. And then I got like recommitted. And then I read his other book, uh, The Case Against Sugar in 2016. I, I remember reading it at 3 a.m. on a flight from California. And I like couldn't put it down. It was so good. Wow. And uh, I, it was just like, I really need to like stay in this movement. I really think it's like, you know, it like inspired that kind of meaning in me that I, I felt I was lacking. That's amazing. And I guess how I got from it, I wasn't that serious until 2016. When I read uh, The Case Against Sugar, I started going on uh, Reddit and looking at science and trying to find like the latest research that was popping up. And Reddit is just like a giant forum website, you know, you know, like those old forums that, you know, you make an account and then you post threads yeah. and uh, people respond and stuff. It's like that, but there's unlimited topics and you can make like a new subreddit very quickly and you're like a moderator and then it gives you all these abilities to allow certain types of posts like link posts or text posts and you can create like flair that tags it all and stuff so anyway there's this subreddit called our science with 20 million subscribers or so wow. And I would go on there and, you know, not all of the science is nutrition or health related, but a lot of it was, and I'd be like fighting in the comments, like, Hey, everyone should go keto, you know, stop eating sugar, blah, blah, blah. And not everyone has read Gary Tobbs. So, you know, they would say, Oh, you're full of crap, like go away. And it was very painful to like post science there and be rejected so soundly. So Eventually, I realized there was another subreddit called Keto Science, which was basically on its last legs, very few uh, subscribers, not many new posts. And I was like, this subreddit needs like a redo. So I asked like one of the remaining mods to become a moderator there. And I completely re retooled it to be like open for blogs and open for YouTube links um, made it easier to post there, added like four times as much flair. Flair is like what we use to organize the posts when you submit them. Mm. So one might be weight loss. One might be insulin resistance. One is Alzheimer's disease. And then there's, you know, multiple other ones, digestion, carnivore diet, uh, vegan keto science, all the little like subcategories that go into keto science, because really like science, you know, keto science is not just about like the latest low carb study, uh, you know, 20 people doing a diet, you know, there's so much more out there because everything relates to it. Insulin resistance relates to it. Red meat relates to it. Um, paleoanthropology relates to it. And I, I realized like, wow, like I could really make something cool by thinking about all these other places, all, all these other scientific arguments that kind of back up the main point of keto. And uh, so I've made it happen. And I've, the subreddit is now at 200 and 
11,000 wow. uh, members. Wow. And to, to scale that, I mean, it's not the biggest subreddit there. The keto subreddit is at two and a half million people, I think. Mm. Um, but that's much more like general advice and then people posting their like anecdotes. Wow. Um, and ours is much more rigorous and we don't, we have a mod queue as well. So if you post like a new post there, moderators have to approve it. Mm. And, uh, it like upgrades the discourse a lot, but I I've been trying to get people to join it over the last couple of years, like doctors and scientists and people that like are engaged in the space because I think it's like the best way to keep track of every new piece of science that comes across the board. Interesting. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm not super familiar with Reddit. I've been on there a little bit and was on there in preparation for this interview. And I was just blown away by the amount of information and good information too that's that's on there. It's definitely a tool that I will be using a little bit more for somebody like me who's not super like, you know, I'm not I'm not that great at using Reddit. What what kinds of things would you tell me like as, as a tip or a trick to kind of navigate. Cause there is a lot of information there. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to make an account. Um, and then with that account, you subscribe to subreddits that you care about. So, uh, there's like some default ones that are based on like big topics like our science or our politics. Uh, you know, there might be some religious ones or music ones you might be interested in personally. Like I, I'm a moderator of our technical death metal, which is my favorite genre of music. And nice. I asked to be a mod and became one. And, you know, I upgraded that whole subreddit myself too. And, you know, it's just all my hobbies are basically represented on Reddit. I have, I'm subscribed to a bunch of gaming subreddits and a lot of devs will post all their uh, links to that and then ask for comments. So it, it, it ends up really uh, the motto of Reddit is the front page of the internet. And when you think of it that way, uh, it's basically users are upvoting the best content based on different subreddits. Mm. And the upvotes act as a way to show you what's most important to the community. I see. So it gives you kind of a way to filter what's coming out and new and it, so when you use Reddit, normally you have a homepage and it's like a composition of all the subreddits you're subscribed to and all the new posts that are picking up steam that was posted like in the last couple hours or today. Wow. I see. So that one homepage gives you like a view of, you know, what's going on. It's a lot like having friends on Facebook and seeing all their posts at once yeah. or you know, seeing all your followers on Twitter. Gotcha. But the nice thing is you can open up the subreddit itself and you can organize the posts by when they were posted or by how much karma they have. Karma is like the voting uh, metric mm. that we use. There's uh, post karma and comment karma and they both get added together. And it's basically a way to like, game like make a game out of it so if you post like a popular link um you might get a couple hundred upvotes gotcha. whereas if you get, if you post a boring link it, you might get one or two yeah gotcha <laughs> and uh yeah Wow. Gotcha. Well, thank you for that explanation. Selfishly, um, I'm not the most computer literate and I'm, I'm still struggling to figure out like Instagram. So <laughs> I really appreciate you talking about that. Maybe the listener understands it a lot better than I do, but yeah, that's definitely going to be something I want to use as a toolbox moving forward. Um, why, what, what, for what reason did you want to take over that subreddit? Why was it important for you to have a hub to share this information? Cause this is not your day job. And I imagine when you try you know, when you were describing revamping that page, that's no small amount of work and neither is the Facebook page, the world carnivory tribe. Like there's a lot of work that goes on behind this that I don't see you getting paid for. What is it about you? Why did you decide to be the one to do that? I guess I justify it as community service or something like that. Um, mm. I, I I feel like it's a difficult job and you have to kind of have an open mind to a lot of things and you kind of have to be, uh, you know, like a fair mod. Uh, and I think my personality is a good fit for that. Uh, I like, 
if you read the RSIANCE posts, you know, there would be one comment among many that, you know, is promoting keto and all the, all the comments after that were basically going over the basics, you know, so you couldn't really get into the deeper nitty details because you were always dealing with like, you know, the one oh one. It's like, what about the 400 level, you know, like science class that you want to, you really want to dive in. So I I really realized that like that mentality would be useful and having like a protected area that would drive that conversation would be nice. Mm. But really it was like a way for me to organize and categorize categorize all this new information that's coming every day you know there's five or ten studies that are interesting and you know you can't like i guess you could post them on a facebook group um i'm in a lot of facebook groups that do that but i don't love like the being able to find old posts in facebook i think it's kind of hard to organize them it's not the best place to post science really gotcha Wow. Super interesting. And while we're on the topic, you told me about something that I was completely unaware of, and it's uh, Zotero, I believe. Um, yeah, Zotero. Yeah, I've never heard of that. That was an, a fascinating place to go to learn about all kinds of different topics. Can you tell the listener a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, as I'm talking about this chronological and this adding to like a public database concept with Reddit, um, you know, Reddit works great for that and it gives you ability to have comments and, you know, upvotes and all this, but it, it's still also kind of challenging to go through all the articles. It's challenging to search them. Um, and also when you open up an article, like there might be a link to a Sci-Hub article, uh, Sci-Hub link that opens up a PDF of the article, but that's not guaranteed. Um, so I, I was looking for a place like how, how do researchers do their research? How do like when you write a book, like how do you keep track of your references? And one thing that software engineers are really good at is being lazy. <laughs> so when we are lazy, we realize, wait, someone has already had these problems before and they probably made an app to make all this seamless and mm. easy. And once I like had that realization, I looked it up and sure enough, there were a bunch of softwares all dedicated to keeping track of uh, science articles basically and use them to write your, your papers. Wow. And I was like, well, I'm not actually writing a paper, but maybe one day I'll write a book and I'll want like all these sources in one place. So how do I keep track of that? And I realized this Zotero platform was like the main one to use there's uh there's another one called mendeley which got bought by one of the big publishers and now that's kind of frowned upon because it's like a little too too close to the industry i guess Hmm. um zotero is more of like an open platform i mean there's like a company that makes it and stuff and uh basically i pay like uh i don't know like 50 bucks a year or something or 20 bucks a year. And I have six gigabytes of storage on my account. Mm. And I, I started making Zotero with another uh, woman named Shoban Huggins. Yeah. And very cool. Yeah. And I realized, well, first of all, there's probably a bunch of other Zotero libraries that have already tackled this problem. So I looked around and there were these open groups that, already had hundreds of studies collected. So I basically dragged and dropped them into mine and built a library with a couple other libraries in like 10 minutes with 2000 articles or so. Wow. And, you know, at that point I was like, wow. So what's next? So you can get a Zotero desktop uh, application and it just runs on your desktop and then you get a Chrome plugin in your browser. And whenever you're on like a science article, you can click this little button and it saves the article. It takes a snapshot of the page, basically uh, saves like the HTML and all the text. And then it also will look for the PDF of the file 
And if it's open access, it will get it. And if it's not, it might use Sci-Hub and look for like an illegal version of it. Hmm. And then it will save the PDF into the Zotero. Wow. It's not actually like illegal, but it's like it's like the alternate route, I guess, to get get, get gotcha. it. And then if I can't get a PDF that way, I can also email or ask for the full PDF on uh, Twitter or something. And yeah. Wow. Gotcha. People will give their own link. Um, and then I drag the PDF into that Zotero and it saves it and it goes into the cloud. And then anyone with this keto science database link can see all the articles. And uh, earlier this morning, I added like a hundred articles from the last two months or so that were posted on keto science that I had not uh, added yet. And I just clicked on that little thing, that little button in Chrome and added them one by one. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's, so I've got paleoanthropology in there. I've got uh, lots of vegetarian and vegan science because I think that's kind of like the alternate theory out there. Um, and I think it's good having all that science in one place. Um, all the low carb and keto studies, lots of insulin resistance studies, Alzheimer's, diabetes, PCOS, gout, uh, all these diseases that I think are kind of naturally metabolic, metabolically central or uh, related to some kind of plant consumption sure. are sure. in there. Yeah. I mean, the thing that blew me away about that was, number one, the, the number of studies that are out there um, really blew me away. All kinds of stuff. And so it was really cool to click and click and go down and like see how many studies there were that, that are all in one place. The other thing that really blew me away is some of these studies are not new. Like they go back quite a ways. And it's so crazy to think like, how, how did we get this so wrong? How did we miss this? Like the, the studies have been done. They've been looking at this and all kinds of different stuff. And it's like, we're just like ignoring them now. It's crazy. Well, uh, we have been ignoring them, but I, I don't think it's a simple problem. And it's, it's really 200 years of uh, all competing theories that have been kind of bouncing back. And it, it's difficult because this stuff mixes in science and theology and tradition and marketing. Um, you know, like the, the the changes in the 1910s where they started selling Crisco and trying to get Crisco into cooking books. Right. You know, that changed everything. And then Procter & Gamble started uh, the American Heart Association in 1953. And, you know, it's like those little details in the history kind of get obscured. We think everything should just be, you know, the pros and cons of each thing. Mm. Oh, man. Gotcha. Well, it's super interesting. I want to take a deep dive into some of that, but I want to go back to your personal history. And I want to know, when did you first transition over to a carnivore diet? Um, what did that look like for you? Are you doing the same thing now that you were doing then? And then let's let's go into some of that history because I find it super interesting. And we've hosted Dr. Mickey Bendor recently and talked about you know our human evolution. And that kind of stuff is just so endlessly fascinating and sounds like something you, you're going to know up and down. But I want to start with you. T tell us how you found the carnivore diet and what that looked like. Yeah. So, uh, 2016, I read the case against sugar and I took over keto science. And then the next year, uh, in 2017, I came across a Sean Baker video on YouTube. Someone posted it to keto science and I was like, what's this? And it's like, well, I guess technically it's keto. So I got to look into it. And over those like six months from like September, 2017 through 2018, were kind of like the largest growth of carnivore because Sean was getting like large podcasts to host him. And that culminated in the Joe Rogan experience in November yep. or December. And that like blew the movement 
up like like nothing else dude when we when we hosted him on our show i told him that to this day i have not finished that episode because i thought it was so outlandish and ridiculous i turned it off right in the middle and to this day i haven't gone and and finished the episode i had to tell him that really (laughs) yep (laughs) he said something about blood work and at the time i was like this guy's insane eating ribeyes and not looking at his blood and like yeah he feels amazing but that's this is the stupidest idea i've ever heard i turned it off to this day i have never finished that episode even though i've interviewed him i am a coach on his website i have listened to countless hours that come from him but not that particular rogan episode (laughs) yeah and now you i don't think you can even like listen to it anymore uh a bunch of them were like removed from youtube and from spotify i heard about that that's crazy yeah i i don't i don't know how much to say it's you know they're censoring it or something but uh i don't know maybe spotify just didn't want it didn't want to be associated with controversial figures wow wow super interesting okay anyway back to you yeah so uh so that summer you know i went through the, the the conversion process i guess to carnivore i would do it for two weeks um you know just i you know i was already pretty keto and i would basically just stop eating the onions and uh, salad I was making otherwise or like the mix of vegetables like cooked and baked and bad that I really liked uh and I I was fine and I was like my main holdups to it were like vitamin c and fiber and I realized they were both really bad arguments and then uh I came across uh Michael Goldstein uh, also known as Bitstein on Twitter. Mm. Uh, he has a website called justmeat.co. And I was like, oh, nice. This is like a list of all the main carnivore sources. There were PDFs to books there. And I read uh, Not by Bread Alone by Dozermar Stephenson, also called The Battle of the Land. Mm. And that book just blew me away and made me like a believer in the, in the whole carnivore movement because, uh, this anthropologist, uh, he was, uh, working at Harvard and then he like made a trip to go up and live with the Eskimos and study them, the Inuit. And, uh, when he went there, instead of living kind of as the white men do kind of, a you know, in their in their little villages, eating their own food, he went and lived directly with the Inuit, with them in their, you know, he spent a whole winter basically with them. And he had to go through the whole deconversion himself without any of the knowledge we know now. And he had to give up bread. And then basically he lived on only fish for the first four months and was like, wait, I can do this. And I actually enjoy it. And I eat raw fish and, uh, or boiled fish. And, you know, he, he made it work and it was like, he was amazed. And he, he brings up diet all the time in that book. Um, you know, after his fish phase, he goes through a caribou phase and then he does a seal phase and, you know, they're only eating animal products. Um, and he didn't really like, it, he didn't make plants as like a necessary part of their diet at all. You know, he said like, yeah, sometimes they had berries and stuff, but it wasn't for like a nutritional reason. Mm. And uh, he went into lots of detail about scurvy and kind of like the main problems. And then he also had a whole study where him and another guy, uh, Anderson, I think his name was, uh, they did a study in New York City. Uh, at a hospital for a whole year and all the dietitians there and doctors thought they would die in a year you right. know like in a couple of weeks basically by only eating meat mm. and instead uh they were in perfect health at the end of a year mm. so i i don't know i guess that study doesn't really change a lot of people's minds because people are like oh it's just two people but like at that point, like what, what are the oppositions to it? You know, if you can live one year fine, then, and, and you say you're in the best health of your life, then yeah, maybe there are issues going on. But I, I, I think like the big issue with the carnivore diet is like, 
you've got two questions. Can I survive for a short time on it? And then can I survive for a long time on it? And the long time part really gets people confused because then they're thinking about saturated fat and cholesterol and all these things, you know, lack of fiber and all these things, lack of fruit and vegetables, all these things we've been taught that we absolutely need for good health. And I really just don't think they're true anymore. And I almost, you know, I wonder if like the natural lifespan of humans is 120 or so. Mm. And that we think old age is 80 or 90, because that's just like the average age we can get to on fairly high plant diets, you know? Sure. Um, Sure. And 80 and 90 with like 60 of those years on medications with chronic disease, being miserable, like it's not a pleasant existence for a lot of people. My, my grandparents are both still alive on my mom's side and they're in their mid nineties. And so I, I have a good example to follow. Whereas my dad's side died in their seventies or so, but yeah. you know, they, they had uh, lung cancer and alcoholics and stuff like that. So wow. I I've got two paths I can follow, I guess. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, but my parents are pretty healthy and they have basically taken the keto and carnivore messages to heart. I, I actually bought my dad, uh, not by bread alone for Christmas. And he was calling me like through this winter and like reading me quotes and, uh, he, he would read quotes out loud when he was reading it so to cool. my mom. Wow. So and I cool. was just like, this, this is what I wanted. This is exactly it. That's amazing. Wow. That's so cool. You also, when you were kind of getting into this, you'd been doing it for a year or two, you were featured interviewed on good morning America, which it's kind of funny to go back and watch now. And like, he's on this extreme fad diet and you guys were like, well, we feel like it's pretty reasonable and we feel great and look great and everything. And then, you know, they, they kind of poo pooed it a little bit after they aired the interview. What was that experience like? That was, oh, that was a wild day. Uh, so the day before the Good Morning America interview was like a Thursday and the New York Post published a article on carnivory and I was in it. And I, someone like a journalist joined World Carnivore Tribe like earlier that week and asked for like some quotes. And I was like, oh, I know everything and I'll I'll make sure like the right things get talked about and stuff. So I called or we set up a meeting and I called her and I was like on the roof of my building after work and talked to her for like an hour and a half, like telling her everything I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then like a pretty decent article got published in the York post. And that morning, basically Good Morning America called me, the producer called me and I was like, I don't even know how you got my number, but all right. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I really wanted carnivore to succeed and have like a spot in the light. So I made Good Morning America happen. I actually had like some work deadline too, that I was like micromanaging at the same time. And it did not turn out well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> doing both things at once, but, uh, So, so the GMA thing happened and man, we had that, you know, they asked me lots of good questions in my kitchen and I answered like a half hour's worth of content. And then they cut almost all of it out in the interview. And, you know, we only had two and a half minutes airtime in there. And then after it, there were like two minutes with uh, Jen Ashton, Dr. Jen Ashton. And she like did that. She like poured uh, uh, some like fibrous coffee beans through a filter and was like, this is what happens when you don't eat fiber. And I'm like, that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No sense. We were like laughing through the whole thing. I I even posted the, uh, our reaction watching it on live TV. Wow. uh, To world carnivore tribe. And yeah. And also that's not, my group, Sean made that Sean made that group. Um, Sean made World Carnivore Month in uh for the January of 2018 and asked like a bunch of us, a bunch of members to be moderators. And I I asked 
And I thought like my keto science experience would be a really good fit for like a moderator of a Facebook group. So, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been basically like one of the main posters there though. I, I, I like making nice posts and putting all the information in formatting links and making it easy for people to get started. So, yeah. wow, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it was funny that fiber example is just so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, but again, we, we get people that say like, this is a fad. This is something that's on the come up because Sean's, you know, doing ribeyes and deadlifting a million pounds and whatever. But can you explain to the listener why the carnivore diet is not a fad diet? So it's not a fad diet because I looked up the history of the carnivore diet and it actually goes back to 1797 or so. Um, and there was a doctor named, uh, Dr. John Rollo in England. And he actually 20 years before he had gone to an Island in like the Caribbean and noticed that there was a fishing population there that was pretty healthy. And then there was a city population and they were farming sugar cane and eating like the processed foods that are being shipped to and from the colony and their health was disastrous. And, um, when he met, uh, this captain Meredith who had diabetes and he put him on an all meat, uh, basically no carb diet. And this guy cured his diabetes. And then Rollo made a case report about it and then started using the technique on other patients and it spread through the literature. And I looked up all the references from those original papers and I put them in my Carnaway All History database. So I have a database in, on my website with 550 plus entries, wow. uh, all about the history of carno, carnivory and vegetarianism and the Inuits and ethnography, basically everything that's happened in the past 2000 years that I've been able to find that relate to this. Wow. Wow. And we have already mentioned Dr. Mickey Bendor. He's done such yeah, an yeah, amazing, yeah. he's done amazing work with evolution and his whole concept about, you know, man as a fat hunter is super interesting and makes a lot of sense to me. His latest paper that talks about how we overhunted bigger game because we wanted the fat and then had to transition into eating, you know, smaller animals that have more protein and less fat, I thought was super interesting. And I, I asked him a question and I really liked his answer where I, I said, I said, are you, are, are humans supposed to be omnivores? And without hesitation, he said, yes, but that doesn't mean that we can't specialize. And he, he, he cited that mo there's a lot of animals that are omnivores, but most of them are like 70, 30 plant or 70, 30 animal versus plant. And, and we can have both like, yes, you can eat whatever plants or animals, but we should be focusing more on the animals. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good insight. And like, like I hate the omnivore word in a lot of ways because it's just so meaningless. And like, you know, you like, you'll see a deer eating like a dead carcass and being like, why are they munching on bones? Like they, they're herbivores. Right. But you know, deer do that. And all, all the, and crocodiles eat plants here and there, but they are obviously like built as carnivores. Mm. So it's like, like you can't just think of like omnivore, Omnivory as like a, you know, it doesn't really tell you anything about the animal's habits. And uh, yeah, I, I really like Mickey Bendor's work. I met him uh, at Low Carb Denver and Carnivory Con two years ago. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I went to that and it was awesome. Wow. Yeah, I went to Low Carb Denver last year, 2020, and it was a weekend that everything was like getting shut down. It was so I bizarre. I there too. Were you there? Yeah. Wasn't that a weird weekend? <laughs> it was really weird. I, I, I liked it. I was like, oh no, the world is ending. Yeah. I don't right. know if I'm going to get home at the end of the week. <laughs> I was, I was fortunate. I, I drove from Salt Lake city to Denver. And so driving back, um, there's, there's a Costco in this like small town of Eagle. Um, and I was able to stop there and grab some toilet paper because Denver was completely out. And I think Salt Lake was almost completely out too. So that was one good <laughs> thing that came of it. So funny. Oh, that's great. So if we, if we had evolved for so long, you know, eating animal products, seeking out the fat, seeking out the proteins, you know, the way our bodies are built, why, 
why would we have ever shifted to raising plants, domestication of grass? Yeah, so Mickey's theory is that we have our last common ancestor with apes roughly 6 million years ago. Um, and between that time and now, we basically turned from a chimpanzee kind of ape into a carnivorous bipedal fat hunting ape. So a lot of uh, like all the apes do eat uh, lots of fiber and that ferments in their colon. And then that turns into fat that they can use. So the apes are kind of already on a high fat diet, if you think of it that way. So what I think of it as is that instead of using fiber to make fat, we just ate fat directly. Mm. And because Africa was this massive grasslands area and the uh, forests were kind of turning into these open grasslands and the grasslands would become ridiculously healthy with uh, these giant uh, megafauna on them, going around them, fertilizing them. And there, there, there was just so much extra biomass. And I don't think we can really process how much there was. And I think that's like the big thing that's missing in the equation is like, we're, we, we look at Africa now and we're like, there's just not that many animals there. Like how would people have survived off of, you know, hunting these, these small lean animals that don't have much saturated fat. And the thing is, well, we weren't hunting small animals. We were hunting the biggest animals we could find. And we were targeting prime adults who had the most fat content at that part of the year. And, you know, we were fat hunters. We, we needed that energy and we didn't really care so much about the carbohydrate energy, the fruit energy, the, the starch energy. And, uh, I, I just think it's such a, like a, a beautiful theory in all its ways because it, it helps us explain why humans are so radically different compared to the other apes we have. Mm. I mean, yeah, we have other lineages that died out over the years. So, you know, maybe if they had survived, we would see more steps, I guess, between uh, chimps and us. But, you know, like robustus died out uh like three million years ago and that was a larger ape that like was dedicated to a herbivory and they had like really large teeth and giant guts to deal with all that plant matter whereas we really had a like a shrinking of the guts and an enlarging of the brain and i think like i i like to think of it as what what gas pedal was evolution pushing that made us so much superior compared to our ape brethren. And I think the only real key in that is animal protein and animal fat, mm. which is the highest quality food source in the animal kingdom. And, you know, it's not like there's other carnivores out there. There's plenty of carnivores. <laughs> and it's like, it, I don't understand why there's so much pushback against that concept, but so over those 6 million years, we, we the megafauna dwindled in population. Either we hunted them to extinction or various climate changes contributed as well. And we had to turn to farming basically as a way to replace our fat calories. So we could still hunt like smaller animals and get the protein for them, that high bioavailable protein. But if we were eating as much protein as we could eat, that might be 35% of our calories. And the rest has to be some kind of energy out of car uh, carbohydrates or fat. And if you can't get fatty animals anymore, or maybe you could just eat the amount of fat and like the small prey, then you might have up to 50% of your calories, you know, from animal foods. Mm. And the other 50% would be from carbohydrates that you can make from, uh, threshing wheat and growing wheat and stuff. So I think it's like, it's kind of just a, it's being able to be nomadic and follow these large bands of migratory uh, herbivores and then kind of them going extinct. And then you kind of just have to sit down in place and 
I, I would think that you, like you would learn the society, learn the environment really well and become in tune with all the, all the plants and understand their life cycles and then be able to kind of uh, invent farming from that knowledge. But uh, if you were a nomadic and you really prized, you know, fatty animals, then you wouldn't want to stick around and grind uh, grains down all day. You know, it's, it's far inferior uh, nutrition, but at some point it it became necessary. Mm. So uh, yeah, those last 15,000 years has just been the greatest mistake of humankind, I guess, but I, I don't really know. I, you know, I can't really say it it shouldn't have happened. Like it did. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. The book, um, sapiens is one of my favorites and it talks about kind of that evolution and history of our species. And it, it kind of makes a few points that I don't think most people consider when you start agriculture, you now create a commodity. So this is a little bit different than what you're describing being nomadic, taking what we need from the land, mostly animals, they regenerate, they you know, walk around and poop everywhere and keep the, the plants healthy. But when you start, when you start um, farming and agriculture, you have just created currency, uh, governments, armies, because you need to fight for land, because now that's very important. You're drawing down... Um, you know, resources, track of it all. Yeah. Math to keep track of it all writing uh, evolved from all of that. And I don't think a lot of people realize also, um, religion, like we, we believed different things as hunter gatherers than we do as agriculturalists. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. So, uh, I've been reading a lot of the ethnographic books from like, you know, like a hundred years ago, one I'm reading now is the heart of the hunter about the sand Bushmen in Africa. And I've read lots on Inuit and stuff. And, you know, they're talking about these like hunter-gatherer peoples and they're, they're generally like basic in terms of like, like the way they think about the world, you know, it's, it's very simple. Uh, You're kind of living in the moment. You're um, you have some like animalistic kind of religion that ties your livelihood of hunting to the earth and the natural seasons. And you might have some taboos built around that, but you don't have like, like complicated math and complicated language and writing. It's mostly oral kind of traditions. So you don't really see like the, the, the products of like the agricultural, like uh, city life, I guess that, uh, the Western world has developed. Mm. And, uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of beautiful. It's like, like, I think we all kind of miss that aspect that kind of tied in nature, like being around a campfire, looking at the stars, eating meat, talking. <laughs> um, and that's been replaced basically by, well, I mean, these, these societies were facing Christianization, basically the, uh, you know, the Western world going out and sending Catholic missionaries or Lutheran missionaries and teaching these religions to the people that they thought of as savages um, or heathens or like they, they, they couldn't understand their local religions. Mm. So, uh, you know, and all, all the native people there, you know, they looked at the white people that were coming there almost as gods because they had, all these, you know, these magical guns that just killed things. They didn't understand how a bullet worked. They didn't understand, like, there was an explosion in the gun. They just heard a loud bang, and then the animal died, like, farther away than any bow they can shoot. And it's like, that's just magic to them, you know? Right. And they they didn't understand how to, like, link the pieces of it together. Mm. Um, so, So, like you know, they would hear about Christianity and they were like, well, we, we have to, we have to convert basically. And over time that, that mindset made them dependent upon like the, the Westerners uh, because, you know, they were living in these villages now and they were learning the religion and they were taking up jobs to get paid by like the trappers. So in the, in the Inuits case, they, 
they would go out on the winter during the winters and they would like uh camp over the ice and they would just hunt seals all day long but when uh, the trappers came they would say oh you know if you go out and trap white foxes you can get guns and boats and we can give you all these you know this wealth but that displaced the ability of the natives to hunt for seals and now because they're lacking food they become dependent on you know the white bread and the sugar that they can purchase with the money they got from their white foxes so like within a generation like the entire subsistence economy of the area gets destroyed and people become just you know like drones of the religion and you know kind of doing whatever keeps like the westerners happy mm. And uh, it's kind of too bad. Like, I feel like we've lost a lot there. Yeah, sure. Um, when, I was, when I was researching for an interview with Lear Keith that we did a while back, um, I stumbled across a vegan propaganda video and the, the voice came on and was, you know, knocking what Lear was kind of talking about. And, and it showed these three indigenous kids and the voice came on and said, these kids have no formal education and they don't know anything about nutrition the way that science knows about nutrition. I'm looking at these three kids. They look perfectly healthy. They've got big wide jaws and big noses and like no shit. They don't have formal education because they don't need it. They probably know way more about nutrition than anybody in the Western world. And their dexterity has got to be off the charts, but they, their physical fitness would be incredible compared to what most people think is fit. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, it's so much of a, you know, like you have these nomadic societies and these kids growing up with their parents and learning everything about, you know, herding or hunting that they need to get by in life. And then that process gets interrupted with this, you know, Western Christianization process and all that knowledge gets lost. Right. Because, a lot of these ethnographers didn't care about these societies or weren't even able to access them until the, they already became like Westernized and civilized. Then like a lot of that knowledge was already gone by the time they were trying to like record it. Yep. Um, so that's why I always look as far back as possible and read the oldest history I can, because I know that has the closest, uh, representation to the truth more or less sure and you know like even when you're interviewing like old people in the 1960s like is it really like a fair comparison to their great-grandfathers you know sure and, uh it's already like giant leaps and bounds differences mm. and you know it's funny like anytime i'll a lot of times vegans will comment like oh you look you think the Inuit are healthy. Well, here's a study that says they're not. And the study only looks at Inuit from like the 1940s onward. And I'm like, well, we are, they are already completely Westernized and That's dependent right. on, you know, uh, you know, they don't have the same lifestyle anymore. And they're, you know, you look at their diets and they're not a hundred percent meat. So you can't say like these bad results are because they're all meat diet when that isn't the case anymore. Yeah, that's right. It's not fair. It's not a fair comparison. It's not a fair comparison. So yeah. interesting. So let's fast forward. It's 2021. We have gaming consoles and iPhones and stuff that, you know, it is not going to go away. You're going to be in Brooklyn, you know, you're in a city. It, how do we marry the two ideas? What should a normal person um, be thinking about when they're making choices about their food? And in today's world where, yeah, we're not going to go back to being hunter gatherers, but we can mimic a few things that would be really good for our health. Well, the, uh, if Mickey Bendor's theory is true and we really are fat hunters, then I would think that the ketogenic diet and basically following a fat fueled lifestyle is the way to go. Um, and a lot of our, I guess, life now is like, which, who do you give the, like the responsibility of your life to? Do you say it's the government or the doctors or the dietitians? Or does it come down to like you figuring it out for yourself? And I, I feel like the systems that we've depended on and trusted have broken and crumbled and become corrupt. And we don't really know who to trust anymore. And like, 
it's like a challenging thing because, you know, like when you say like go research it, it's like, you know, you can definitely research the wrong things and you can come away with the wrong ideas. So it's kind of like, like I want everyone to just be tuned in and understand the history of, you know, our society, which goes back two or 300 years. And you can't just say, you know, like, oh, in the seventies, we thought saturated fat was bad for us. And that's like the truth forever. But, you know, like 200 years before that, no one thought fat was that bad for you. That's right. Uh, And then you, 2000 years before that, everyone praised fat. And then 20,000 years ago, everyone only ate fat. And Mm. um, it's, it's hard for our puny human brains to process time and scale. And, and then, so I, I think it's up to us now to basically figure out what's best to do try it and experiment and report your results, uh, join social media and, you know, share it, but also be real red, understand the opposite points of view, understand how to steel man their arguments and make them the best they can be. Um, and then at the other end, I mean, there, there are massive changes we can make. We could kind of change the whole farming uh, system in the U.S. that's soy and corn-based and make it more holistic, agriculture-based. But to do that, you know, like you have to convince everyone that corn and high fructose corn syrup is bad in such a way that we don't farm anymore. And we need to, you know, like prove that soybeans aren't good for human health or that uh, the soy protein isolate isn't doesn't have like the right amino acids for us, but it's like the, the problems are so big and everyone is so tucked into their silos at this point that it's very difficult to broach different groups into it. I, I would like to see like the meat manufacturers get more into the, like the holistic farming mentality, um, regenerative agriculture, bringing back, uh, like these large open ranches basically where all life can flourish. And then like the humans who are maintaining it can kind of cull the, the, uh, herbivores off of it at a healthy rate. Mm. Um, but like kind of like rewild it almost, but like, like how would you even make that, you know, make a bill like that in America? It's near impossible. Mm. So I, I don't really know how we get there. It's going to be so much education and, and uh, getting people to agree on what is actually helping our human health. I, I think it's red meat and then what's hurting it. And I think it's processed plants and also the bad advice to just, Oh, it doesn't matter how much processed food you eat. As long as you add some fruits and vegetables and whole grains, everything's fine. It, I think the additive formula is overemphasized instead of the subtractive formula Mm. where, you know, you need to subtract the junk food out of your diet. You can't just patch, you know, put a bandaid over it and eat some healthy food apparently. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I just, I love that you made that point and these systems are huge and maybe we'll change them and maybe we won't, but, but yo, like you're a software engineer, you're, you're not a nutritionist. You're talking to a personal trainer in two separate time zones and you're sharing the message and yeah, we might not be able to change the system from the top down, or maybe that's going to take a lot of time and work, but doing what you're doing. Um, I love what you said earlier about giving back. You're, you're using your information and your knowledge and your platforms to help share with people. And that changes lives. It might not change everybody's lives, but it, it, it will make a difference for someone. And it's, it's really amazing that you would do that and have that sense of giving back and sharing. We normally close with, you know, one simple tip, uh, that you'd want to leave with a listener. But I think, I think what you just said is perfect. Like do the research and then try, you can try things and see how you feel. Be really honest with yourself. It's, you know, maybe, maybe not the diet that everybody's going to do, but, but, and, and, of one, like this is your life and your lifestyle. And if you try it and you don't like it, don't do it. But I think it will work for a lot more people 
then it doesn't. And, and it's, it's you, it's the grassroots, it's moving the ball forward. And it's so exciting and really empowering. And we're just, we're so grateful that you'd be willing to take all that on and, and help people so much. Where would you like people to go to find your work and connect with you if they want to learn more? Well, uh, you like aced my, all my uh, handles in the beginning of the show. Um, I'm mostly, I'm easiest to access on Twitter, Travis underscore Statham. Um, please get Reddit. I mean, uh, join the Keto Science subreddit, make an account. Uh, you can get a phone, like the application on your smartphone is really good. And I basically say like, check Keto Science every morning and just see what's new. Uh, ask some questions uh, and that, a great thing to do is like read it and then kind of summarize it in a comment like write a TLDR for other people that don't have time and uh, yeah I mean like every every comment you make on social media is also giving back you know like you're, you're giving that feedback to everyone and over the years you know I, I would I made like a book list on keto science of all the books I want. I wanted people to read. And then I realized, oh, that could go into a wiki page. And then I realized I can make a list out of this. And then I was like, well, I can make a whole website out of this. And then I could take all the books I read and take out excerpts from that, put it into an organized chronological database. And I did that. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of like a, it's a fun hobby, I think. Um, it keeps me busy between my video game sessions. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> Which, great. That's um, great. And yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like I'm giving back by doing this work, and I'm really glad that people appreciate it. Yeah, they, it is definitely appreciated. We're so grateful for you and your time. Travis Statham, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Casey. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.